Hello and welcome to Spawned, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase, co-founder of CoolMomPicks.com, and today I'm chatting with author Lauren Kong Jessen about being biracial in America and for me as a mom of four multiracial kids. We're going to be talking a little bit about that too. So it turns out we're both biracial Chinese-American debut authors who have written novels with biracial Chinese-American protagonists. Lauren's rom-com Lunar Love came out on the 10th of January, and my book, A Thousand Miles to Graceland, drops today. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. Plus, trust me, you're going to want to stay tuned to the very end for a fun surprise. Now listen, it is a very exciting day for book launches, of course, but let me be clear, this is such an important conversation. So first, before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Lauren. Lauren Kung Jessen is a mixed-race Chinese-American writer with a fondness for witty, flirtatious dialogue, and making meals with too many steps but lots of flavor. She is fascinated by myths and superstitions and how ideas, beliefs, traditions, and stories evolve over time. From attending culinary school to working in the world of big tech to writing love stories, Lauren cares about creating experiences that make people feel something. When she's not writing novels, she works as a content strategist and user experience writer. She also has a food and film blog, A Dash of Cinema, where she makes food inspired by movies and TV shows. She lives in Nashville with her husband, who she met thanks to fate, read the algorithms of online dating, two cats and a dog. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thank you for having me. All right. So we're jumping in right away here. I have to say publicly, because I know I've told you this kind of offline, that it's been really wonderful being on this debut novel journey with you. We're both biracial Chinese American, and we have books that address the Chinese American experience. Yours launched a couple of weeks ago. Mine's launching today. And I just want to know, are some of your own experiences as a biracial Chinese American incorporated in your book at all? They are. And I will say it has been really wonderful being on this journey with you. It's been really fun ever since the beginning. And I saw your announcement. So I'm really glad we can be going through this together and have our debuts out in the same month. In terms of my experiences being in the book, there are, and there are a couple that come to mind. First is that Olivia is asked at one point in the book if she's Korean, and that has definitely happened to me, being asked that question in different contexts, different settings by different people. And then I also do struggle with racial imposter syndrome, which is an on-the-page discussion that the characters have. Can you talk a little bit more about racial imposter syndrome. I don't know if a lot of our listeners are familiar. In fact, I have heard it, but I guess maybe I'm not as familiar with it as I thought as that my brain is like trying to figure that out. So just clarify that for everyone. Sure. Racial imposter syndrome basically describes feelings of insecurity and doubt that you might have about your own racial or ethnic identity and how it doesn't fit with how others might perceive you. So it kind of blends into lacking a stable sense of belonging or feeling like you're an imposter in a certain community or your cultures or heritage. And it doesn't feel like either community really accepts you. And so you kind of feel like you don't have a specific place where you belong. And when you do try to belong, you feel like you are 
being an imposter. That is super helpful. And as you were talking, I'm like, oh, yes, nodding my head (laughs) vigorously up and down. And I think that really leads into our next question, which is how you identify. So I know in your bio, you have mixed race Chinese American. And I'll be honest, I have struggled for many, many years with identification and have only recently figured out that I like to use biracial Asian American. And I'm still honestly working with that. I think for a while I just use Asian American, but that doesn't even capture how I feel about myself and how I am navigating the world. Having the right verbiage to identify ourselves is important, at least for me, because in some ways that helps to connect me to other people. I'd be curious to hear how you identify and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I completely agree. It does help me to my whole life. I've really embraced it, but it wasn't until writing the bio for this book and talking more about this book and even writing this book where I was thinking about how I identify and how I want to own my identity or what to call myself. I say mixed race Chinese American, Mm -hmm. and I've always been proud to be mixed. And it's an important part of my identity. Someone once said it was just kind of in a random meeting, actually, where they're like, you get to determine how you identify There's a lot of conversation around, oh, don't use this word, don't use that word. And I think when it's about yourself, it's about what you relate to. Of course, as long as it's not harmful or offensive, I think you get to identify how you want to. And so even mixed race, some people might not like, Mm -hmm. but I think it does capture what I am and how I identify and see myself. I think that's super helpful too for parents like me who have kids. My kids are a quarter Asian and also, you know, have other parts of them and mm-hmm. biracial, multiracial. I do actually like mixed race because that I don't want to say equally identifies all of the parts, but it gives honor and respect to everything. But I don't know about you because we're going to talk about whiteness, but that's a tricky one. And I don't know your background specifically. My dad was German and my mom was Chinese or is Chinese. So for me, having the acknowledgement that I am Asian, but also that I am white is really Mm -hmm. important, actually, in my experience and makes my experience and my kids' experience very different than someone who is Chinese-born American or American-born Chinese. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about whiteness. I very much identified growing up as white, which meant I was very disconnected from my Asian heritage. Heritage. So my mom would make some Chinese dishes. I knew I was Chinese because I would go to my Chinese grandparents' house at Thanksgiving and they would do like a whole entire meal <laughs> that was Chinese and then do an American Thanksgiving. But really, honestly, that was about it. I find myself when I'm hard on that whiteness, right? When I see like white people doing microaggressions or that sort of thing, I realize, wait, I'm kind of being hard on a part of me. Mm. And being part Asian was more of a novelty, I guess, and not anything I really identified with until later in my life. And I wonder if a lot of that was because my mom struggled very much with her own identity as being Chinese American. She was born in the 50s. She had an extremely fraught relationship with her mother, who was an immigrant born in China, and it was an arranged marriage and was not happy to be in the United States. So her experience of being Chinese in America really 
affected me. I'd be curious to know your experience about whiteness and, you know, a little bit more about your background and what it was like for you growing up. Sure. Well, that's really interesting to hear about your mom and her experience and how that kind of trickled down to your experience. For me, I think it really depends on the context. So Mm. my mom came over from Taiwan in the 70s. My dad was born in America on a farm in rural Washington. They met in college and she moved over to America when she was pretty young. I grew up in Seattle. We would fly out to Hawaii where my grandparents lived at the time. And that's where my mom ended up growing up. So I feel like I was really exposed to the language and different foods from Chinese bakeries. However, my dad does not speak Chinese. And so we didn't grow up speaking the language. My mom does speak Chinese and she speaks it with her family. So I learned on flashcards with my popo. I took Chinese lessons. I went to Chinese camp. I took Chinese in college. I still even have the dream that I will one day speak it, even though I have tried my whole life and it is very difficult Mm -hmm. to learn when you're not immersed. Mm -hmm. I even have this in the book too, where Olivia says, sometimes I have the cruel realization that I'll never know the language my own mother grew up speaking. And it's something that I struggle with. And I think about that when I think about whiteness, because that's just kind of the culture I was steeped in. So trying so hard to learn Chinese, but also just being immersed in American culture and America and day-to-day life that if you're not completely immersed, it's very difficult. In certain instances, I feel like my whiteness stands out. But then I also feel like in other instances, the Asian side of me stands out. And so it depends on the context and where I am and who I'm around. Maybe also how I'm feeling on a given day. That's so hard to navigate. Yeah. And there's not a lot out there. I mean, what I'm finding, and I'm not sure if this is your experience, but so many mixed race Asian women in particular, right? It's probably who's reading it other than my boyfriend. (laughs) I don't know about what you've seen, but at least on social for me, so many people are like, this is amazing. Thank you so, so much for writing characters who I can identify with. And I'll be honest, I was really surprised by it because I think for most of my life, I was like, okay, I'm a white person. My mom's Chinese. It's super cool. Everyone's like, oh, that's so cool. Blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, I'm Asian. I'm Asian American, right? But it just hasn't felt exactly right. Mm -hmm. And that's because I'm not actually Asian American. That mixed race or biracial or multiracial component is so huge. It is so challenging. And it has caused me in recent months, especially writing this, to really think about what it's like to have two different cultures and one that is considered a majority culture and a culture who has classically and traditionally and historically suppressed the minority culture. And I am that person that is me together in Mm -hmm. one person. Is that sort of a recipe for therapy? (laughs) I mean, yes. (laughs) It's hard. I don't know. And as a parent, for me, it is hard then when you don't feel secure or understood or feel like you have a community with your own identity. It can be very difficult to pass that on to your kids. I don't know about your experience just being close to your grandparents and the Asian side of your family. I am not. So I rarely see my grandparents. We haven't actually spoken in a long time. I feel quite disconnected 
from mm-hmm. the Asian side of my family. And so a lot of that has come from me doing my own research. Completely. I do too. A lot of the Asian side of my family members live in Asia and it's harder to get together. I feel like it was easier when we were younger and you had built-in breaks to be able to see family at reunions. And that side of my family is pretty international mm-hmm. versus my dad's side of the family who are all in couple states. So I do feel that too. And I think technology can help bridge that, but it's oh, also yeah. like, they're of a different generation. My popo is on WhatsApp. However, she needs help with that sometimes. And her eyesight is not great. And so looking at the phone is hard. It's one of those things that I also have a complicated relationship about being so disconnected physically, digitally. So I have been doing a lot more exploring of my Asian roots. A lot of that is because my mom's first cousin, she is sort of the family archivist and genealogist and did an extremely extensive look back at our family. And it is something I treasure deeply now, but that's really all I have. You know, some of the stories I don't know about my family and really just in general. I don't know a lot about Chinese history, particularly in America. And I do have a children's book coming out later this year that is about my Chinese family. But, you know, no surprise here. We're not learning about the deep history or really not very much history of Asians, especially Chinese Americans in school. Mm -hmm. Like I just learned why there are so many Asian dry cleaning owners and restaurateurs, which my great grandfather was one. So I'm curious, like, did your family family teach you about Chinese American history? Or is that something that you had to seek out on your own? It's something I seek out myself. I learned family history here and there, but I wasn't taught the history of Chinese Americans in school or really at home. It's something that has to be an intentional discussion. But because we aren't taught and if our parents weren't taught that history either, then they too would have to learn the history in order to teach it. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be really hard for parents to have to add that onto their million mile long to-do list and teaching your kids other things too. I think it's an important thing to teach. I would encourage it. But if you're going to learn it at home, then somebody needs to know the history. I learn it now on my own. I do it mostly through food. Hmm, Uh, And I'm kind of like on a journey right now to make various dishes from Scottish shortbread to Asian baked goods. I'm constantly looking for recipes to try to understand my cultures better. Plural cultures, because that's what we're talking about. And I appreciated your description of how your background and mine is Chinese, Danish, Scottish, and Welsh. And so there's just a bunch of different foods that I can explore and try. But as for Asian American history, yeah, it's a complicated one. There are some great books out there as well that I have purchased that I'm excited to dive into. It's it's really a self-initiated learning. Yeah, I think for so many of us and for those of us who are parents, right? And this doesn't just apply to Asians. It applies to Black culture, really any minority culture that we're not seeing taught in public schools or honestly, even in private schools, right? A lot of parents are having to take that on on their own. And I love that you are honoring all the cultures, which I think is important. I just recently read my German grandmother's sort of memoir biography that she wrote, and she was a German war bride, married an American soldier, and her story is incredible. I mean, wow. it is it is amazing. She was an opera singer in Germany, was there during the war, you know, married him to get out of the country. And I was actually more familiar with her history because we were closer growing up. I took German from her. She lived nearby and I actually had a closer relationship to her, but honestly did not even know the details of her story. So I love that you're doing that. And I know for the parents who are listening, that is such a wonderful way to explore the different cultures. And I think maybe even more commonly, 
we see Asian foods or South Asian foods or any sort of non-white food being explored. But hey, shout out to like, you know, the Welsh and Irish and Scottish and German, right? There are like some fabulous cuisines. And that's yep. such a wonderful, may I say, like gentle way, I guess, to really expose your kids and even yourself to the parts of your culture. I mean, the recipes that my mom knew that she learned from her mother, I actually finally learned over the pandemic. And I have to say, it not only connected me more to my culture, but it connected me more to my mom. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you have found that in your cooking and your experience, whether it's been a way for you to also just connect to the person who is your parent or are your parents. Definitely. We celebrate New Year's and then we also celebrate Lunar New Year. We get together as a family and last year it was my husband and my parents my dad made the fish. My mom made like a baitong gao and I did all the homemade dumplings. So there was dumpling dough, dumpling filling, and my husband made all the vegetables. And it was a really nice way to gather and cook together and like be in the kitchen in one space together. We did the shopping together. We picked out just all the ingredients together and we could talk about it and picked out the candies. And so it's a really lovely way every year to be able to have that conversation. I think food is a really accessible entry point into different cultures. You can make it together. It's delicious. There's a lot of different ingredients you can learn about. Lunar New Year is celebrated in many different cultures, but specifically in my family, I think Lunar New Year is a natural way to gather and learn about Chinese food. Well, speaking of Lunar New Year, your book is about Chinese Zodiac, right? And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the history because okay. I think it's one of the things that many people are familiar with when it comes to Chinese culture, maybe. <laughs> my personal memory of it is seeing it on the placemats at the Chinese restaurant we went to as a kid. And I have to be honest, it wasn't anything that I ever felt people took seriously. And it was always like, oh, God, you're the rat, right? Like I was a dragon. I just thought that was super cool. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I have a few dragon <gasps> tattoos as an ode to it. But uh, cool. I feel like it is in some ways, I don't want to say a metaphor, but like it, it's not really taken seriously. It's kind of in some ways how Asians are seen in this country, right? And how we have been portrayed even still, like it's getting a little better, but it's like always the silly sidekick or the goofy best friend. So talk a little bit about the Chinese Zodiac. It's such a big part of Lunar Love, your debut yes. novel, but I, I want to hear a little more about it. Do you have any insights? Like, tell me all about it. Sure. So the Chinese Zodiac is a belief system that's based on the lunar calendar where 12 animals represent a repeating 12-year cycle. So every lunar year is represented by a different animal. As you mentioned, there's rat, ox, tiger, rabbit, dragon, snake, horse, goat, monkey, rooster, dog, and pig. And each animal is associated with various personality traits, which is why many people use the Chinese Zodiac as a way to learn more about themselves as well as who they're compatible with. I love the Chinese Zodiac in that way because I think it's a language that we can use to learn more about ourselves and others. And it is a big part of Lunar Love where they do Chinese Zodiac matchmaking based on who you're compatible with. This traditional idea of Chinese Zodiac matchmaking goes head to head with the app competitor who turns the Chinese Zodiac into a dating app and has a more modern approach where he doesn't really care at all about compatibility. So it's these ideas of your personality traits and which parts of those traits clash with others. 
and where are they complementary? I've always wondered, does it matter what year you are within your sign? So for instance, I was born in 76 and I'm a dragon. I know I'm different than someone born in a different dragon year, but does that come into play? Like Taurus, for example, is, you know, my earth sign or whatever sun sign, I guess you would say. But they say like a late April Taurus is different than like a mid-May Taurus or whatever. Are there those sorts of like differentiations within the Chinese zodiac? There are. And there are also different elements, wood, fire, earth, metal, and water, as well as ascendants, the actual hours on your birthday that you were born in. And so I talk a little bit about that in Lunar Love, where she's matching people based on their animal zodiac sign, but she's also looking at the ascendants. Because if you're born between 1 and 3 p.m., that would be a different animal. And so I could be a horse, but if I'm born between the hours of X and Y, I might also be a pig. And those pig traits might be more compatible with a different animal sign. It's a little bit of a complex mix of different elements and signs. And so that all comes into play when you're looking at who's compatible with who. Oh, I'm so excited to dig more into this. My brain is like, the wheels are turning because I've always just been like, I'm a dragon. And you know, that seems to fit me perfectly, right? Like I'm like, oh, that's me. But oh, there's so much more to it. I love this. And when you were doing research for the book, like how did you research this? You know, because I think about astrology where you can have it read and there's like the fifth house and like your Mercury rising and all this stuff. So I imagine it's in some ways a similar type of reading. So how did you go about researching this for the book? There's a lot to it and it's really fun to dig into. I relied a lot on my natural interests and just growing up learning about the Chinese Zodiac and knowing my sign and what traits I related to. But I dove a lot into books that explain the Chinese Zodiac and all of the different traits. There's a lot of great resources out there that I referenced in order to to learn more before I really started writing it. I also try to figure out a way to simplify it because as we talked about, there's elements and there are ascendants and signs. It varies similarly to horoscopes in Western culture, but I didn't want to overwhelm the story with the history of the Chinese Zodiac. Mm -hmm. So I really picked out the animal signs as well as the ascendants to discuss and to use as that matchmaking foundation. I loved learning a lot about it, but also balancing the history of where the belief even came about. There's a scene where Olivia and Bennett are talking about the great race which is the origin of the Chinese Zodiac, where the Jade Emperor held a race and all of the animals in the world were invited to compete for spots in the Zodiac calendar. And so this competition becomes known as the Great Race and the top 12 animals who place become the official animal signs. They talk about this on one of their get-togethers. And I think that's an important part to include because... It explains so much about the different traits, like the rat wanting to get ahead and being ambitious rode on the back of animals crossing the river. When Olivia's looking at Bennett, she knows this information and she applies it to him. And so she thinks that he's being sneaky and using her, using the Chinese Zodiac to get ahead. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of nuance within the traits in the Chinese Zodiac that I incorporate into these characters and into the story. There's a lot of history behind it, a lot of great resources out there. It's very fun to learn about especially when you want to know more about yourself and 
your friends, families, colleagues. Yes. Potential love interests, all all the things. So for me, it was really important to show what I'm kind of calling like little stories Mm -hmm. of being biracial, mixed race, Asian American in a big way. And I say that in my bio and I mean it, right? Because there are racial themes in my book. We talk about being Chinese American, about being mixed race, but it's also like just a mom and a daughter who have a difficult relationship, right? And they're Mm -hmm. going on a road trip, which is like just part of being human. And I really felt that in your book too. It's like, we're Chinese American. We fall in love like people, (laughs) which you don't see very much. And I'm grateful for the memoirs and the heavier stories about our history and our past and all of those things. But also it's great to just be like, oh, cool, a couple and she's Chinese American or whatever. And we just don't get to see that in books, on TV and in movies. Is that some part of your writing process or when you came up with the idea was important to you or did that just happen naturally as you were writing? I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that. Completely. Growing up, I didn't see myself or my family represented in the media, movies, or books. That was really important and will always be important for me to showcase in my work. I originally wrote this book for me. I just hadn't seen a lot of rom-coms where I was represented or people like me. And so when the book started to take more shape and kind of go somewhere, one of my biggest dreams is for people to feel seen with this. And that really is like, however that might look, whether it is about the struggle of not feeling like they're enough, being mixed race, if they're trying to figure out how to adapt traditions, or if they're online dating and loving or hating, it. I wanted to show characters who are just living their lives, right? We Mm -hmm. fall in love. We feel grief. We feel big feelings. And we act sometimes in ways that we can't explain. We're driven by internal motivations. And then on the other side, I did want to show this conversation about being mixed race. I longed for this type of conversation in a book because sometimes it feels like it gets ignored in a way that is kind of a type of erasure of the real struggles we feel. And so I I do in this book have on the page conversations about the racial imposter syndrome, not feeling like we're enough and being mixed race, not knowing the language, different cultures, microaggressions. I want to show both and how that plays in with living our lives. But when we're living our lives, we also do experience these things. Blending the two was one of my goals for the book. And I thought that was important to show. And you did it. Yeah. It's here. Lunar love is here. It's here. Yay. A Thousand Miles to Graceland 2 is here. And you know what? Before we get to our cool picks of the week, we have a special treat. We actually have a clip from Lauren's new book, Lunar Love, narrated by the amazing Rachel Wong. Shout out to her for doing such a wonderful job. So don't go anywhere. Listen to this clip and then we will be back with our cool picks of the week. In my almost eight years of matchmaking, there's one thing I know to be true. Love is like the moon. Case in point, love moves in phases. New love is a barely there whisper in the night sky, a slow burn into brightness. The relationship matures in the first quarter, advancing into full illumination, two compatible people becoming whole. The immediate passion wanes but doesn't disappear. Instead, the initial flash evolves into a steady glow. Like the moon, love is dependable. You don't have to see the moon or love to know they're there. Both the moon and love are romantic and enchanting, can be moody and mysterious, possess dark sides, and have gravitational pulls on us that we just can't control, no matter how hard we try. The moon was formed when a large object collided into Earth. 
a happenstance so cataclysmically devastating that produced something so beautiful. When two people collide, there's the possibility that love will be created. There's also the potential for us and everything we've ever known to be thrown out of orbit. As a matchmaker at Lunar Love, my family's Chinese Zodiac matchmaking business, it's my duty to keep clients and their relationships rotating on their axes and revolving in orbit. I make thoughtful and personalized matches based on people's compatible animal sign traits. My years of hard work have paid off because I'll officially be in charge of lunar love in just a few hours. By the end of today, its legacy will be my responsibility. Okay, now it's time for our cool picks of the week. Cool picks of the week. Lauren, you are my guest, which means you get to go first. Okay, so my cool pick of the week is Tower 28's Make Ways Lengthening and Voluminizing Mascara. I don't wear much makeup at all. I just don't really have the patience, really. But Tower 28 is an Asian-owned clean beauty brand. And I have sensitive skin and have eczema. So being thoughtful about what I put on my skin is hugely important. This is the best mascara I've ever used. It lengthens my short eyelashes, doesn't flake. It's not clumpy. It doesn't end up above or below my eyes, which is a specific problem. And at the end of the day, it doesn't make my eyes watery, which is probably the most important. So the first time that I used it, I couldn't believe it. And I just love that it's friendly for my sensitive skin. Well, you're going to laugh because my cool pick of the week is also a Tower 28 beauty product. (laughs) It is. I have another cool pick from them and it is their SOS Daily Facial Rescue Spray. Yes, I love it. Oh my gosh. This stuff is magical. I am not even going to even try to pronounce the hyaluronic zubba zubba that they, they put in there. Let me just tell you, everyone, you just spritz a little if you're feeling a little redness. For me, I'm, you know, a woman of a certain age and like you never know you're going to wake up one morning and you're just going to be puffy or a little red. You just spray it. In fact, I'll be honest, like I think I probably used too much of it because I like blasted through it. (laughs) Yeah. So it is so, so awesome. Highly recommend. I have also very sensitive skin and always am a little like should I be spraying something like that much on my face? Totally awesome. Works so well. So listen, two shout outs for Tower 28 Beauty. That's awesome. I should then, just to change things up, also mention another Asian owned and also deaf owned brand. It's called MXT 2510 and they make sustainable clothing and basics. So think like super cool sweats, very cool tees. They have this wrap dress that I've been coveting for a really long time. No patterns, very simple, based on the West Coast. And I love their stuff. It's casual, but you can elevate it. And I love that they use different sized models and they showcase different ways you can wear the item, right? Because they're on the higher end because they really care about sustainability. So they may be a little more than you might pay for, let's just say like a plain sweatshirt, but they style them on a lot of their posts. So anyway, another recommendation for an Asian owned brand. We're doing a theme here, folks. It's MXT 2510. And keep in mind everything that we talked about today on the podcast, including 
Lauren's book, my book will be over on coolmompicks.com. And also you can connect with Lauren. She is on Twitter and Instagram. It's Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N-K Jessen, J-E-S-S-E-N. That's at Lauren K. Jessen on Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to her newsletter. It's Lauren K. Jessen.substack.com. So if you want to get a hold of her, that's how to find her. Of course, the best thing you can do, though, is to make sure to grab copies of Lunar Love and A Thousand Miles to Graceland wherever you get your books. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our guest, Lauren Kung Jessen, and our awesome engineer, John Bowen. Now, if you've got a moment and you can leave us a five-star review, we would greatly appreciate your time. You've heard the spiel. You know, subscribe, download our episodes. It helps other listeners like you find us. You can also join us on Facebook, the Spawned podcast community, Recipe Rescue, OutTech Your Kids, and you can grab a copy of my book, A Thousand Miles to Graceland, wherever you get your books, if you already pre-ordered. It should be on your doorstep today, actually. Please, please, please leave a review on Amazon. I know it sounds ridiculous. I want to support small businesses and small bookstores, which I do, but Amazon reviews are a big deal for authors. In fact, if you have friends or you've read a great book, take two, five minutes, whatever it is, just leave them a review, hopefully a good one, because it really, really helps other people find their work. It helps them get more work. It's a big deal. Tell your friends. You get the idea. Thanks so much for listening to Spawn. This is Kristen. Have a... Oh, wait. Surprise. Guess what? You get to hear a clip from A Thousand Miles to Graceland. Aren't you glad you kept listening? I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for your support, everybody. How do you get your eyeliner to stay on like that? Jane Choi, our summer accounting intern from Syracuse, peeked through the door that I thought I had closed all the way. She waved her hand over her eyelids. Mine always looks like shit. She whispered shit, as if I were her mother, which did exactly what I'm pretty sure she intended. It made me feel like it. That part, you know, in here? How do you... She gestured to the inner corner of her eye. Epicanthic fold. I cut her off, then went back to typing. Jane was notorious for asking questions about what conditioner I used or where I got that sweater, all of which would devolve rather quickly into some sort of gossipy conversation about so-and-so doing you-know-what. My new tack was looking busy. Oh my god, it has, like, an official name? You do know everything, Grace. She gave me a shrug and a wide smile before scurrying off to her cubicle. I examined my client's quarterly calculations on my laptop screen, surrounded by framed degrees and a photo of me with Mama from my high school graduation more than two decades ago, which made me feel oddly self-conscious. It was the only picture I had of Mama and me, where she looked semi-normal, None of the cheap wigs or bejeweled bell-bottoms and platforms that made every other photo look like I was taking a picture with a Vegas showgirl. I had begged her to dress like all the other moms, so she went with Priscilla Presley in mourning, which involved black from head to toe. I didn't care if she had to pretend she was at a funeral instead of my graduation, It was the most subtle outfit I had ever seen her in. 